Today, Scott Horton is joining El Nino Speaks. Scott is the editorial director of antiwar.com, and he's also the director of the Libertarian Institute. He is the author of books such as Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. How are you today, Scott? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Before we dive in to talk about today's geopolitical insanity, could you give the audience a brief bio of your body of work over the years? Yeah, well, so in fact, just the other day was the 19th anniversary of the first interview I did on the interview show. And I've basically been interviewing guys and posting the archives online since 2003, right around this time. It was what, three days after the fall of Baghdad and Saddam's statue being torn down by the Marines there and all that. And so that's the start of it. And I've been palling around with the guys from antiwar.com since right around that time as well. And we're essentially Ron Paul libertarians and anti-interventionists. And well, that's the staff. But antiwar.com itself, we feature articles by everybody left, right, and center and whatever it is, whoever they are, as long as it's good anti-war stuff. And there are a lot of really great writers on all these topics from across the spectrum, and we feature them all. So I basically have done this interview show all along and finally ended up writing these books and that kind of thing. I've done 5,600-something interviews and basically just the whole terror war long, but of course also, you know, covering Europe and Asia and the rest as well. Great stuff. All right, Russia, Ukraine, everyone's talking about it. What is your initial impression of how this conflict is going so far? Well, it depends exactly on how you measure whose goals. From the very beginning, it wasn't exactly clear what Putin wanted. His argument was broad enough to justify taking over the whole country. Didn't look like that was actually what he was going for. The question was whether he's going to take the entire east or just the Donbass region. And now it looks like they are taking the Donbass, which is the far east of the country. And all the land along the Azov coast there between Russia and the Crimean Peninsula, the big part of the issue is guaranteeing fresh water resources for Crimea. So it looks like they've settled that. Now, as I know you know, there's been a civil war raging in the east of the country since 2014. And the Russian-backed and pro-Russian separatists in the east of the country, in the Donbass there, in Donetsk and Luhansk, or the oblasts or provinces there, they have held territory and kept the Ukrainian government out of certain territory there, but not the entire Donbass. So if you want to get to the entire Donbass region, there's fighting there and Ukrainian forces that from the Russian point of view would have to be dislodged and so forth. I think the best case scenario, Jose, would be that Putin just declares victory and says, see, I got the Donbass and I beat up your military enough that I feel happy about it. And I bet that'll make you think twice about joining NATO now and go home. I'm not betting on that. I really don't know what's going to happen. But if he had wanted to seize the capital city, that could still be in the plan. I don't know. But it doesn't seem like that's what they were really doing. And everyone said their convoy was just failed and the Ukrainians have been whooping them and beating them back. I know they have taken casualties. The Russians admit that they have thousands of casualties. But I don't think it's clear that they were really trying to sack Kiev and then were beaten back, although they do have these sophisticated shoulder fire javelin missiles and so forth the Americans have given them over the years. So there's a possibility there. I think the more likely answer is that that was a feint while they were seizing the Azov coast there and the town of Mariupol. But as far as the specific stories about specific battles and specific neighborhoods on this and that side of town, I try to look at the different experts, Twitter feeds and so forth, some of the real military experts and all that. But I'm very noncommittal about who's being featured in these videos doing what. And um, more or less, I'll take the daily battle map as probably true. But as far as individual actions and activities happening here and there and whatever, I try to really hold my fire on all of that because there's so much, as they call it, disinformation going around on all sides here, and particularly the American side, but I'm sure the Russian side too, the Ukrainians caught in the middle. 
it's hard to know what to believe about the daily reports. But it's not over yet. And it's a hell of a thing. Certainly thousands of people have been killed on both sides already. When the dust settles from this conflict, do you believe that Ukraine will exist as a coherent nation state? Yeah, probably. As I'm saying here, it looks like they're probably just going to run off with the Donbass and not all of eastern Ukraine. If you look at Ukraine, it's divided in half, although it's a very curved line, but it's divided by the Dnieper River. And so the question mostly was, are they going to take just the Donbass or all of the east? And then if they take all the east, might they go as far as Odessa, which is the real prize, but is to the, or a real prize at least, but is to the west of the Crimean Peninsula there? And are they going to go that far or not? It's, you know, looking more and more, whether it's because they've been beaten back, like in the American and Ukrainian narrative, or just because their goals never really extended that far in the first place, we don't know. But they have officially announced that they're scaling back their campaign to just the Donbass, at least at this point. So regardless of exactly the cause of that, that is a more minimalist take on the war. Again, the future is very uncertain here, but as of now, it looks like this is at least a path toward winding it down, declaring that they have this territory in the Far East and that's it. So then, in other words, in answer to your question, you'd have two-thirds or three-quarters of the country left. Just they better promise to stay out of America's military alliance, and maybe they can move on and be neighbors from there. But looks like the war in the Donbass is going to end one way or the other here under Russian control. So you're a big picture kind of guy who understands that like structural problems require structural analysis to understand international affairs. That's something that I would say is sorely lacking in mainstream political commentary because, let's face it, the current conflict in Ukraine didn't just happen overnight. Based on your analysis, how did the Russo-Ukrainian war come about? Well, I mean, as I think anyone listening should be able to intuit, right? This is all Bill Clinton's fault. And I know that sounds kind of flip, but no, I really mean it. See, yep. and I'll do the fast version of this and you can ask me follow-up questions. Oh, I should never say that. That's the kiss of death. I'm going to try really hard to do the fast version of this. Bush Sr. promised not to expand NATO to the East. Now, this wasn't just some promise. The Soviets were dissolving their entire military and bringing it back behind Russian borders. They were emancipating not just the Soviet republics, but the entire Warsaw Pact states, all of Eastern Europe, including Eastern Germany, were set free. And the Americans wanted to reunite Germany under NATO domination and alliance. And in order to make Gorbachev, the dictator of the Soviet Union, feel good about withdrawing his army back and letting Eastern Europe go, America vowed not to expand our military alliance, NATO, into the former lands of their military alliance, the Warsaw Pact. Bill Clinton came in and he broke that promise. And not only that, he sent the so-called Harvard boys to completely destroy their economy and kick them while they were down. Instead of being good sports and helping them create a limited constitutional republic and a free market, ha, 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 they just ruined their economy with their shock therapy and all this, waged multiple wars against Russian interests in Bosnia, Kosovo, and in Chechnya, where it really is true, and I can back this up, that Clinton's CIA backed the Chechen terrorists against Russia. And this was how Putin came to power. Yeltsin, who Bill Clinton had rigged the election of 1996 for, appointed him to help run the Chechen war, fighting against Bill Clinton's terrorists there. And that was what solidified his rise to power. Then W. Bush comes and he just makes everything that much worse. W. Bush rips up the anti-ballistic missile treaty and he adds, what, five or eight new members to the NATO military lines, including the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, two of which are right on Russia's border, the third border is Belarus there. And by the way, there's a little strip of land called Kaliningrad that belongs to Russia that's between the Baltics and Poland. So, yeah, there's a place where war might break out. We have the <laughs> same problem in an area called the Transdenitser near Moldova, 
which is a Russian territory, a breakaway province on the other side of the line there. Another potential flashpoint. And then Bush also promised to bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. And that led to the war in Georgia in 2008 when they were trying to smash their breakaway provinces in order to solidify their borders so they could join NATO, which ended up leading to a Russian response, which could have led to a war with the United States. Again, trying to keep it brief here. Um, And also it meant installing anti-missile missiles, Jose, in (laughs) Poland and Romania. And the problem there is, first of all, anti-missile missiles is like wearing armor to a fist fight. You call it defensive, but actually it's giving you license to go further than you might already. Now we have mutually assured destruction. Looks like we're trying to cancel that with a first strike capability. In other words, give us the ability to hit them with so many nukes first and then be able to shoot down their retaliatory response enough to give us confidence that we could just go ahead and start a nuclear war and win one rather than the lesson of mad, which is nobody wins so we can never fight it, right? But then it's worse than that because the missile launchers that they installed there, the MK-41 missile launchers are dual-use missile launchers that you can use to launch Tomahawk cruise missiles. And later, Trump tore up the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that kept medium-range nuclear missiles out of Europe. So the Tomahawks are not equipped for H-bombs, but they can be, and now the treaty no longer prevents it. And anyway, also during W. Bush, and this started really during Clinton, but Bush did the most of them, and these are the color-coded revolutions. This massive project by the CIA and the NED and their allied so-called non-governmental organizations, of course, led by Soros foundations, but also including others, to overthrow any government friendly to Russia anywhere in there near abroad. And that means Serbia, Georgia, even Tajikistan. They tried Belarus twice, and they overthrew the government of Ukraine twice in 10 years. The first time under W. Bush in 04, and the second time under Obama in 2014. Now, This was what really led to the current crisis because when America overthrew, it was the same guy that Bush had overthrown in 04. He had won the election and Bush's orange revolution essentially prevented him from taking office. Same guy, Yanukovych, wins the election of 2010. And he was actually a Western-leaning guy. They say he's the pro-Russian puppet or whatever. He was from a Russian-leaning party from the east of the country. He was trying very hard to get along with the EU and the Americans, and tread kind of a neutral path. And when he refused to sign an agreement with the EU that the Americans changed at the last minute in the fall of 2013, then that was the cause or the proximate cause of the outbreak of the protest movement and the riots then in the Maidan, which is sort of the Tahrir Square, kind of the big town square there in Kiev. And this is where this very divided country, the ethnic Ukrainian nationalists, especially, and others too, came out to protest. But then for all of November, December of 13, and into January and February of 14, somebody, aka you, my friend and your audience, were paying these people by the millions of dollars to stay out there, to throw rock concerts, to keep them out there, keep them entertained, big screen TVs, heaters to keep everybody warm, keep the porta potties serviced and everybody fed. All this is going on. And there's John McCain and Chris Murphy and Victoria Newland, who is Robert Kagan's wife and is now again in charge of America's Eastern European policy under Joe Biden. There they are filmed, giving away sandwiches and cookies and palling around with the protesters out there. Now, in America, right-wingers don't protest that much, mostly left-wingers do. And Yeah, there's the Antifa guys, but mostly it's like harmless liberals and hippies with signs and this kind of thing. And I think that's probably maybe what most people think of. But yeah, no, it's not like that. You had very far right-wing groups there, real avowed Hitler-loving Nazis. And I know that everybody to the right of the communists are called Nazis in America right now, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about literally the proud grandsons and great-grandsons of the Galatian SS that served Hitler and perpetrated the Holocaust in World War II. Not shirtless, shoeless, rednecks out in the woods in Alabama shouting white power at each other when they have no power and don't really (laughs) threaten anyone. We're not talking about that. 
prison gangs or something. We're talking about a serious force in Ukrainian society and seriously involved in the coup d'etat, the extremely illegal and violent coup d'etat that overthrew the government in 2014. And your audience is familiar. Here's a touchstone for everybody. Everybody remembers the F the EU phone call. Remember that scandal? American diplomat uses the F word. And this is yep. the headline. Well, why was she saying F the EU? Aren't they our guys? Yeah, it was Victoria Newland Again, Robert Kagan's wife. At that time, she's the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. And she's on the phone with Jeffrey Pyatt, the ambassador to Ukraine. And why is she saying F the EU? She's saying F the EU because they're taking too long and procrastinating and trying to compromise on this coup. We don't want to compromise. We want to overthrow this guy. And the rest of the conversation is about how this is who we're going to install in power. She is essentially vetoing the guy that is famously now the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko. She's saying, I don't want him in the government. I want him on the outside doing public relations. He's not ready yet to be in government. And I want for Oleg Tannibach to be his handler and take care of him. Meanwhile, Yats is the guy. Arseny Yatsenyuk, he's the one I want to be the prime minister. He's the one who has the experience and the connections and whatever and is going to do what we say. Well, who's Oleg Tannibach who's going to train Klitschko for us? He's a Nazi. If you put Oleg Tannibach into Google Images, there he is with a Hitler salute and the SS lightning bolts behind him. I mean, everybody can do it right now. Tannibach, just sound it out. That's him with a K at the end there. Well, there he is also in your Google Images with John McCain. And with Chris Murphy standing on the stage in the run-up to the coup. And this is the coup that George Friedman from Stratfor, in an interview with Russian media, with Commersant, I guess, said this was the most obvious coup in world history. And what are you going to do? They asked him, hey, what about the coup? And he's like, eh, sure was a coup. What's he going to do? Deny it? Come on. That's exactly what it was. They asked Ron Paul on Fox News two days before the coup, how come you're saying this is a coup? And Ron Paul said, because it is a coup. Look at what they're doing right now. It's two days later, the government fell. It was overthrown and the guy had to flee from a bunch of Hitler-loving Nazis taking over the government buildings because of a deal the Americans had forced the EU to help to broker there. So then that, my friend, led to the loss of the Crimean Peninsula when the new government threatened to kick the Russians right out of there. Well, they decided to take the thing. Now, a little background. The Crimean Peninsula was originally taken from the Turks in war by the Russians in 1783, the same year that Ben Franklin and John Adams and John Jay signed the Treaty of Paris to end the Revolutionary War with Great Britain, four years before our Constitution was even written, and what, eight years before it was ratified, okay? That's how long the Crimean Peninsula has belonged to Russia. So if Virginia belongs to the United States of America, then... Crimea belongs to Russia. But what happened was, during the days of the Soviet Union, Khrushchev, who is Ukrainian, after Stalin died, needed the Ukrainian Communist Party support for his rise to power. And so he just gave it to them one night. He's the dictator of the USSR, right? He's the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and premier of the Soviet Union. And so by his decree, he said it was Ukrainian territory. Well, it was still super majority, I think about 60, 65% ethnic Russian with the rest ethnic Ukrainian and also Tatars there, Turkic Tatars there. But it was, you know, at least a bare super majority, if not a super duper majority of ethnic Russians there. And even though many of them wanted to join Russia since the end of the Cold War, they never got any takers on that. And this is an important point. I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm belaboring it, but what I'm trying to tell you here is that when the Soviet Union fell in 1991, the Russians said to the Ukrainians, you let us keep our naval base there and you guys can keep the peninsula. Just let us keep our naval base. And they were paying for it. They had a lease on the thing. That status quo held for 23 years until Barack Obama and his Nazis overthrew the government in Kiev. And that new government threatened to kick the Russians out of the Sevastopol naval base. And they said, yet. We're already here. We're not leaving. I mean, we are talking about a naval base. These are armed forces. So what do they do? They just walked outside with their rifles and stood on street corners and said, this belongs to us again. And then that was it. So what they call a coup de main. And 
very few people were killed, less than 10. I mean, Wikipedia says there were six, and even those are not directly attributable to Russian forces. At the time, I saw Russians shoot a couple warning shots over the heads of some Ukrainian troops and tell them, you boys better turn around and head the other way. And they said, da, and turn around and went away. And that was it. So whatever low-level fighting there was, a couple people killed. I'm not even certain that that was even by Russian troops at the time. It was still, we're talking like less than five people were killed by the Russians, maybe none, maybe one or two in this takeover of the Crimean Peninsula. But then what happened was in the east of the country, we're still talking about the spring, you know, late winter, spring, uh, beginning part of 2014 here. In eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass region, which is that issue right now, they essentially, the locals seized government buildings and said, well, listen, if you guys can seize government buildings and overthrow the government in Kiev, the one we elected in a free and fair election in 2010, well, we can seize government buildings and refuse to recognize your new coup junta. Well, the government in Kiev, the new American-installed government in Kiev, immediately declared war, a war on terrorism, they called it, and attacked the east of the country. And at the time, they just lied over and over again. The Russians are invading. The Russians are invading. But that was never true. They never did invade. They did send special operations forces across the border to help the locals there keep the Kiev military out and to help fight their side of the war. They never sent their infantry or their armored divisions across the border in that whole time. And it was the Ukrainian government that killed the vast majority of the people who died in the war in 2014 and 15. And then it was the Europeans. It was Angela Merkel came and read Obama, the riot act, and said, listen, Obama, I'm going to go work out a peace deal here. And Obama said, fine, and let her do it. And it was her and Holland from France who went over there and signed the Minsk I and Minsk II deals. But then through Obama through Trump and into Biden, the Americans never leaned on the Kiev government to implement that Minsk II deal, which included a real ceasefire in the East. You had essentially what they call low-level fighting going on the whole time, mortar rounds being traded back and forth and so forth. They were supposed to create a new sort of semi-autonomous federalism for far eastern Ukraine and integrate them otherwise back into the, you know, economic and political union of Ukraine and to truly cease fire. Well, they never did that. And the Americans, I don't think, ever wanted them to do that and continued to arm up the Ukrainian government to fight that war. And so if you go back to last December, they were telling the New York Times, we're carefully calibrating the amount of weapons we're pouring into Ukraine we want it to be enough to deter Putin, but not enough to provoke him. Well, so either, I think, unless you have another idea, it sounds to me like either they're very poor at calibrating how many weapons to pour in, or they changed the calibration and turned it up to the point that they would provoke an invasion. I think the former explanation is the more likely. I mean, honestly, they were being very blatant about this at the time last December. They go, look, plan A is we're trying to tell Putin, you better not do it. But plan B is if they do, we're going to arm up an insurgency against them. We're going to drag out the war as long as we can. We're going to bleed the Russians and weaken them. They were openly talking like that for months. That's why they weren't really negotiating in good faith to try to stop the war. Biden said blatantly, come on, we're not bringing Ukraine into NATO. We're not. What do you mean? medium-range nuclear missiles in Ukraine. We would never do that. What are you talking about? Well, why wouldn't he just put it in writing then? That was why I thought that there wasn't going to be a war. I thought that Biden was giving in enough and was giving assurances, credible assurances, that, look, Germany's not going to let us bring Ukraine into NATO anyway. And Biden is a senile old coup, but he's not going to put mid-range nuclear missiles right in Kharkiv there a few minutes from Moscow. He's not going to do that. But why wouldn't he just put it in writing then? And in fact, it just came out the other day, one of his staffers admitted that they refused to put NATO on the table for negotiations. They were talking with the Russians in November and early December, but they refused to discuss the possibility of agreeing to take Ukrainian NATO membership off the table. And that seems like possibly like it was calculated to provoke an overreaction as anything. And I hate to say that because... It sounds too conspiratorial or whatever, but I got to tell you, after the war started, I went back and I looked and I found in 
the Washington Post, there were three news stories and two opinion pieces by David Ignatius, who has long been known as extremely close to the CIA. I think a former actual CIA analyst or PR flack or something, but who has always been very close to the CIA. And then there's these two major reports in Yahoo News about some of these guys even being brought to the United States to be trained. And then in foreign affairs and all over the place, and including uh, Hillary Clinton blabbing her fat mouth on MSNBC, where they keep saying, yeah, we want to pour in these weapons and give them another Afghanistan. We want to create this insurgency, just like in Rambo 3, when Ronald Reagan and Sylvester Stallone destroyed the Soviet Union by helping the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. We want to do that again now in Ukraine. Only this time, instead of the Mujahideen and the Bin Ladenite terrorists, it'll be a bunch of Hitler-loving Nazis from the Azov Battalion and C-14 who were over there doing the murdering for us. And they're just as blatant as can be about it. It's crazy. And again, for argument's sake, fine. Plan A was to tell Putin, you better not. But plan B was not to negotiate in good faith. Plan B was, we'll just pour in more Javelin missiles and see how you like that. And that's where we're at right now. And I think that's why we're recording this episode in the middle of April and the war's still going on. Yeah, I find the big picture lead up to this entire Russo-Ukrainian conflict fascinating because it is the classic security dilemma that you see in great power politics. And correct me if I'm wrong, but even though... Yeltsin was more Western aligned. Didn't he also express misgivings about NATO expansion as well, especially towards the end of his presidency? Yes, absolutely right. In fact, you might remember when Putin was making his demands before the war, he was saying, I want NATO forces back to where they were in 1997. And in the media, they treated that like this was completely insane. What is he talking about? There's no way in the world we're moving our forces back to the way it was in 1997. Keeping Bush Sr.'s promise? Forget that. But he wasn't even talking about that. He was talking about Bill Clinton's promise. 1997 is when they were working on NATO enlargement, but they hadn't gotten it done yet. The Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland weren't brought in until 99. What happened in 1997 was the Clinton government gave their solemn oath to the Russians, to the Yeltsin government, that, okay, yes, 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 we are expanding the borders of our alliance, but we promise we will not move our military equipment into those nations. They can buy some Lockheed products from us, but we're not going to put American military bases in Poland and move our equipment into Poland, for example. We won't do that in, eventually, the Baltics, where... Well, I mean, that was just a lie. They just broke that promise. And in fact, you know, I've been doing a lot of research about this because I'm writing a book about it now. And they went back and forth about this. The Russians said, the Yeltsin government said, listen, we want this in writing. This is a big deal. We want a treaty. And they said, oh, no, you're not getting a treaty, but we'll give you a promise. And they said, hey, come on, how about like a, an executive agreement? Like an official, we want an official executive agreement. And they went back and forth. And I actually want to refrain from making a declarative statement next because I forget exactly where they left it. But it was better than just a handshake. It was, listen, pal, I swear to God, we're not going to betray you on this. It was one of those. It was the kind of security assurance that should have stuck. Like JFK promising not to ever invade Cuba again. That security assurance has held since 1962. We have not sought regime change in Cuba since then. We've had a very, you know, an embargo and all these other things. But that promise should have stuck. Yes, we're bringing Hungary and Poland, et cetera, into NATO, but we're not threatening you, man. We're just spreading peace and stability and our umbrella of security. This isn't a dagger pointed at you, pal, you know? That was the promise. And yes, so in other words, Yeltsin was in no position to do anything about it except complain. And complain he did and insist on promises he did. And same thing with 
Putin, when Putin came into power, he was appointed at the beginning of the year 2000, right? So he had a full year in power with Clinton before W. Bush as president. And he asked Bill Clinton, well, listen, can we join NATO then? And which, by the way, I was a New World Order kook at the time. And I thought, aha, see, I was right. They're going to create a one world government and they're going to bring Russia to NATO and be the one world white army of the North. And then we'll go to war against China and or the Muslims of South Asia. And it's going to be horrible. But then Clinton told him to go to hell and bomb Serbia in order to break off Kosovo, right? In the spring of 99, he had already told him to go to hell and bomb Serbia over Kosovo, I guess, a year before that. But then... W. Bush comes in and Putin again says, well, can we join NATO? If this isn't an anti-Russian alliance anymore, it's just a Pax Europa under American tutelage here, then great. Can I sign up, please? And Bush and Powell, it was Powell specifically, this is in July of 2001, just ignored him. They refused to even dignify his question with an answer. So, you know, they talk about this open door policy. No one can close the open door to NATO. Well, doesn't seem to be that open. When the Russians are saying, listen, we feel like this whole alliance is directed against us and we feel very threatened. And you keep telling us that it's not directed against us and that we are fools to feel threatened. Well, so let us join and then we'll feel a lot better about it. Yeah, right. They would have to share too much decision-making power. You know, they can dominate the Poles and whoever and have them do what we want. But if the Russians were to join NATO, they would be real partners. They would have to be treated with some kind of real respect inside the decision-making process. And that's where the New World Order theory breaks down, right? Because DC is not going to share that kind of power with anybody. So now here we are. And listen, I think this can't be overstated, right? Just picture the map of Europe in your head here. You know, you got the big arc of the major countries, you have the smaller countries lower down, but you have this big arc of Spain and then France and then Germany and then Poland and then Ukraine, right? Are these Texas-sized states that form this arc all across Europe like that, right? Everybody picturing that? We used to draw the line halfway across Germany at the Elbe River. And we told the commies, don't you dare come west of the Elbe River or we will nuke your ass. We'll go to full-scale war to keep you out of West Germany, France, Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, our friends. You're not coming past this line. That's it. Well, now we've moved that line 1,200 miles east right to Russia's border. We tell them, you will have no sphere of influence at all because only we will have a sphere of influence, the entire sphere. And they keep threatening you know, the head of the NED, Carl Gershman, back in October of 2013. And then as you've seen very recently here with Benjamin Wittes, Mr. Mucky Muck from the Brookings Institution, and Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, have just blatantly said on Twitter, it's time to overthrow Putin. Regime change Moscow. Even though they're sitting on 6,000 nuclear weapons. When they said Saddam Hussein was working on nukes, they knew they were lying. As Paul Wolfowitz said, we can do Iraq because Iraq is doable. I mean, they couldn't do a thing about it. And now they're acting like Putin is merely Saddam Hussein when that's not true. But these men really are that careless. And this is, you know, I try to not be too alarmist about this kind of thing. Nukes don't go off usually. And the most alarmist, the worst case scenario doesn't usually play out. But I have to say that the fact I just mentioned about this conflict going on right on Russia's border, not in somewhere in the cushion region that Stalin had established at the end of World War II, but right on Russia's border there, combined with the fact that our government truly is, and I know some conspiracy theories also would like to believe that somewhere else, someone else is in control, uh, but I don't think anybody's really in control at all other than old man Biden, Antony Blinken, and Jake Sullivan. And Victoria Nuland. Like, in other words, what you see in the Washington Post is what you get. This is our war party. This is our war council. It's just the absolute blind, deaf, and stupid leading the incompetent. And you know, with Dick Cheney, he was a ruthless, sociopathic monster. But he wasn't just an incompetent boob. I mean, actually, that's not entirely true. He made very terrible decisions because of how overconfident he was. But 
the level of unreality here. Again, he knew he was picking on a weak, helpless country that couldn't do anything to him, Dick Cheney, right? But this to me is different. This really is sort of like the liberals' worst fears and some of mine about sort of nobody driving the car at all during the Trump times or somebody who was just going to make the worst kind of decision. I really think that's how it is right now. And I think that Anthony Blinken is absolutely as an incompetent a secretary of state as we have ever had. And that includes both Rice's we've had recently, Susan and Condoleezza, who are just absolute catastrophes, and Hillary Clinton for crying out loud. He is as bad as Hillary or, and you know, Sullivan, that was, he was Hillary's right-hand man. That's who Jake Sullivan is. Everything that Hillary did in the Obama years, he was her co-pilot during all that. That's who Jake Sullivan is, the national security advisor. He's the guy that wrote to Hillary Clinton in January of 2012. Hey, look, boss, Al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. If anyone wants to Google the exact quote, it's AQ. AQ is on our side in Syria, meaning they were committing high treason on Al-Qaeda's side in a policy that, as we all know, ended up leading directly to the rise of the caliphate that conquered Western Iraq and ended up leading to Iraq War III. And he wasn't saying, oh my God, we should rethink what we're doing here, boss. He was saying, tee hee hee, aren't we clever with our smart power that we're back in the bad guys against the less bad guys, you know, in that war. So that's who's driving this car right now. That's the American world empire in a border dispute with Russia on Russia's own Eastern border. And in charge is Biden and Blinken and Sullivan with Robert Kagan's wife, F the EU, let's do a coup, Newland literally over there leading the policy under their command. Yeah, it's a total freak show that's running U.S. foreign policy these days. Now, there's a lot of talk in the corporate press about war crimes being perpetuated in the current conflict, especially with a particular focus on Russia. Do you believe that Russia is the principal perpetrator of these crimes or alleged crimes? Yes, in the sense that they launched an aggressive war. Look, as I said, there'd been a low-level civil war going on there as a consequence of the coup, and it is complicated, and it's very much Bill Clinton, W. Bush, Barack Obama's, and Donald Trump's fault, and Joe Biden's fault. Hell, Joe Biden was riding shotgun the whole time on this, right? As senator, as vice president, this whole time has been involved, and now president has been involved. So that much is true. However, for all of my explanation of what Putin did here. I hope that I should have said this in a clearer disclaimer for your audience too, to make myself clear, that I'm not justifying what he has done. We're saying that that makes his actions reasonable. I am saying that they are rational. I am saying, I, I am essentially debunking the narrative that, oh, he's just a madman now. He's changed. That's what Obama and Condoleezza Rice and all these people are saying, oh, he's changed. He's not the Putin I knew. W. Bush said the same thing. Oh, geez, something is different now. No. It's just that he essentially got to the point where he wasn't going to tolerate their foreign policies anymore. It just came to a head is all that happened, right? And so that's what I'm trying to explain. That in no way justifies him invading the country and killing thousands of people and sending his conscript army of what, to me, are still children, even though I know that isn't really right, but they're, they're kids in a way. If they were kids in your neighborhood, you would call them kids, a bunch of 18 and 19-year-olds they were playing ball in your cul-de-sac, you'd call them kids. And they're the ones over there conscripted and sent to go and kill and die in this thing. It's a horror show. And, you know, at the very least, thousands of innocent civilians have been killed. We don't know how many. But so now on the specific, like, what do you see in this video? Who is being tortured? Who is being killed? Who is wearing which uniform and committing what specific crime? I don't know. I've heard credible accusations of Russian soldiers going over the line and killing civilians. And I know they're at least accused of some rapes. That's the kind of thing that does happen in war. It's also the kind of thing that is the subject of war propaganda that people should be very skeptical about. For example, in the Libya war, that was part of how they lied us into it, saying that Gaddafi's army was committing mass rapes. And then in the end, it was the terrorists that Obama and Hillary sided with and Petraeus that they sided with that were committing the mass rapes, as documented by the great journalist David Enders there. And so that kind of, but you know, anyway, as I said before, I'm looking at a battle map and I essentially buy it in terms of who is shooting who in the kneecaps in this clip. I'm not committed. I am very willing 
to try to appraise the best journalism I can find on those issues. And I'm perfectly willing to call a spade a spade if it comes to whoever's doing it. I don't have a dog in this fight other than I'm on the side of civilians. I'm not on the side of either state here or any armed militia or any kind of thing like that. I don't give a damn about accusing anybody of what they're actually guilty of if I'm convinced enough. Simple as that. And yes, Putin committed the ultimate war crime in launching this war. That's the law. And he broke it. And again, context is context, but still, yes, the primary war guilt here lies with, in the immediate sense here, with Putin. It's just, you know what it is? The better way to say it, or, or a good way to add on to that would be to say, it's the larger context of the Cold War with Russia that is primarily America's responsibility, right? It's the circumstance. It's like, maybe I show up at your place and I really start insulting you and then you stab me and kill me. Or maybe I hit you and then you kill me over it. You know what I mean? It's disproportionate. I started it, but the way you finished it ain't fair. That kind of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes sense. Well, I'm not the biggest fan, obviously, of the Biden administration's foreign policy, but I do get the hunch that it could be a lot worse, namely in that he could be sending American ground forces to Ukraine or having NATO directly intervene in a conventional sense in Ukraine. How do you rate the Biden administration's handling of this conflict thus far? Well, extremely poorly. As I said, they did not truly negotiate in good faith to prevent this war. There's always going to be hawks saying that whatever any government is doing is not enough. Norman Podhoretz denounced Ronald Reagan for dealing with Gorbachev. So this is just like Neville Chamberlain giving in to Hitler at Munich. That just wasn't right. And the neocon hawks, They've said the same thing about Bush appeasing the Russians. They said the same thing about Obama and about Trump. And they're saying the same thing about Biden now. It's never enough for the neoconservatives, no matter what. So on one hand, damn them. And let's analyze what it is that they're doing and saying. They want a no-fly zone. Well, that means nuclear war. That means our jets getting shot down, our Air Force and Navy jets getting shot down over Ukraine and shooting down Russian planes over Ukraine, which means everybody's childishness and macho and everything goes to DEFCON 1. And plus, we'd have to hit anti-aircraft missiles inside Russia. Because again, this isn't a proxy war out in Vietnam. We're right on Russia's border here. We would have to be doing airstrikes inside Russia to take out the anti-aircraft. Everybody knows the end of that sentence. General nuclear war and we all die and it's the end of the world. That's what happens if we listen to the hawks who are saying Biden's not doing enough. So we have to grade them on, you know, when they talk about regime change, when Lindsey Graham says assassinate Putin, all these things, we have to grade them on their own terms. They are the most dangerous people on the planet. On his own terms, Joe Biden is in second place, third place after Putin, right? I mean, this is his fault. He came in here. Trump was a hawk. They framed him up on this Russiagate thing, and that really did succeed in hemming him in and preventing him from having a decent policy here at all. And he sent massive amounts of arms. Obama backed these Nazis in their coup, but he was afraid to arm them. Trump sent him a bunch of money. Hell, you remember, Trump was impeached because he temporarily held up one of these arms deals, yep. right? Like, that's how crazy things were during that time. The third impeachment in American history is for holding up an arms deal to a Nazi-infested Ukrainian forces in the middle of a war with Russian-backed separatists, a civil war with Russian-backed separatists right on Russia's border. I mean, if that isn't the craziest bunch of words to ever be strung together since George Carlin, I don't know what to tell you. It's yeah. just it's unbelievable Powerful. the way that they have done this, you know? And then, you know, he sailed the Navy and had massive exercises last spring in the Black Sea and the same thing in the Baltic Sea and the Oktok Sea, which is there north of Korea in the far east of uh, Siberia there, sending in our bombers as well, our nuclear bombers, sending them in to 12 and a half miles off of Russia's coast, just right up to international airspace. Oh, sorry, faking you out, just testing your radars, testing your defenses. We're doing this constantly. Imagine Putin's flying nuclear bombers off the coast of California and off the coast of Maine on a regular basis in the Gulf of Mexico. 
Aha, just testing your radars. Don't mind me. How would America react to that? How would America react to the Russians overthrowing the government of Canada and then launching a war against the people of Vancouver who refused to accept it, threatened to kick us out of all our naval bases in Alaska? Yeah, they'd go apeshit. Right, we would invade on a moment's notice. In fact, like there's a military alliance even I can support. I'm an anarcho-capitalist, but what the hell? As long as we live in a world of nation states, Jose, I gotta tell you, I would support America having a military alliance with Mexico and Canada that simply promises that we will help them keep any other power from dominating their country. They don't even owe us a like response. We'll just make sure that Canada is dominant in Canada, and if not them, us but never China and never Russia and never the Brits either, even in terms of like military power. Fine. Mm. I'd settle for that. I think the rest of the old world can take care of their damn selves. And I the same for Latin America too. And in fact, I mean, and this goes right to the point, right? Is you hear all this propaganda about, well, Ukraine has the right to join any military alliance they want. Well, I mean, is that really true? What if Mexico joined in a military alliance with China? What if Canada joined in a military alliance with Russia? We would go to war, especially they had to overthrow the governments of those countries to put their puppets in place so they can be quote unquote, I, you know, invited in under ironic quotes there. <laughs> we would go to war over that. No, in fact, Mexico does not have the right to join in any military alliance they want and put Chinese bases on the border of Texas or whatever. No, they do not have that right because just in, like you might argue somehow metaphysically in an abstract principled way, I don't know, but in practice, they sure as hell do not have that right. And yet we say that the Ukrainians quite have the right to join our military alliance just a couple of hundred miles from Moscow just right there a few hundred miles from Moscow's border, as uh, Putin said in his declaration of war, in flight time for a hypersonic missile just five minutes away from Kharkiv. No way. He said, this is like a knife at our throat. It's intolerable. We're not going to tolerate it. Again, I'm not justifying what he did, but I am telling you, his argument was a rational one. It's the same argument they've been making. As you pointed out, since Yeltsin's time, that we consider this to be a threat and we need security assurances. We need you to back down on these most provocative things because this sure looks like it's directed at us. Hell, I found a recent quote of Madeleine Albright saying, look, if it doesn't work out and it ends up provoking a fight with Russia accidentally, well, at least we have NATO then. So then what are they going to do about it? Right? Again, ignoring the fact that they still have 6,000 H-bombs is what they could do about it. At least she's dead. Yeah. Too harsh of a way to end this interview, Jose. (laughs) I mean, just craziness all around. Well, I want to shift our focus to like some other countries because there's a lot of weird stuff going on at the moment. So yeah, let's go to Iran. You've had like the Biden administration wanting to go back into the JCPOA. However, it seems things are moving slowly on that end. What's delaying the re-entry into that agreement? Well, right now, you know, I'm not sure which all outstanding issues they put to bed, but the one that they're fighting about now is Trump designated the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, a foreign terrorist organization, FTO. And the Iranians take that as the ultimate insult, that this major facet of their armed forces is on a list of terrorists next to the bin Ladenites and so forth. But it's the kind of thing that politically in America, once Donald Trump threw his hat over that fence, it's pretty hard for Biden to go to walk away without it kind of thing. That analogy holds up. He's sort of stuck with it because the Democrats, of course, are a bunch of pathetic, cowardly weaklings. And so they're always pathetically terrified that someone is going to call them weak. Oh, no, he's going to call me weak. I better escalate the war. I better not shake hands and make the deal that I should make. Again, Norman Podhoritz called Ronald Reagan a coward and Neville Chamberlain. And Ronald Reagan was like, oh, really, huh? I don't give a damn about you. I'm Ronald freaking Reagan. What do you know about Neville Chamberlain, pal? I'm the boss around here, right? He didn't give a damn. He was the alpha dog. We're talking about Joe Biden. He's the kind of curl up at Pat Horitz's feet, you know? Pat Horitz, who said, I, I hope and pray we will bomb Iran and that if we do, it'll cause a wave of anti-Americanism around the world and around the Muslim world that'll make our uh, war on terrorism look like a love fest. But he still hopes and prays that we do it anyway because he's a traitor who cares only about Israel and not about the United States of America. 
So Biden is a coward and Biden is afraid that the hawks are going to call him a coward. And so he is cowardly not doing what it takes to get back into this deal. A deal which I would, you know, hasten to add is really superfluous. It's not just that it's a, you know, people go, oh, it's a bad deal. Eh, who cares how bad it is? Oh, we gave them some of their own money back that Jimmy Carter stole 40 years ago. Who cares about that? The thing about the deal was it's superfluous. We never needed it at all. You know why? The Iranians weren't making nuclear weapons in the first place. All that was a hoax perpetrated by the Israelis and their partisans in America. The proof of that, Jose, is that Netanyahu's been warning about an Iranian nuke since 1992, and right now it's 2022, and they still don't have a single one. And that's because, and it's 1940s technology we're talking about here, right? A simple uranium gun-type nuke. They don't have a single one because they haven't attempted to make a single one this whole time. That was all a lie. All this deal did was help bury that lie, help put that lie to bed as no previous narrative had been able to do. That was what it was. They went to this length just to come up with a better story that, hey, not only do we have an inspections regime, we've got a really dandy inspections regime. Are you satisfied now? And so that was it. They doubled the inspections regime and they're still not making nukes. And so they never really needed to do this in the first place. But the reality is if they don't get back into the deal and they maintain the Cold War against Iran, they maintain the sanctions regime against Iran, then we have a real problem because we have essentially an economic war against the civilian population unending, just like the 1990s, until regime change, which never comes, right? So at some point, the real answer is Who's afraid of the Ayatollah? We can make a deal with the Ayatollah. Maybe the Israelis are afraid of him, but don't worry, Israel. We can handle the Ayatollah, and you guys don't have to worry about it. That needs to be the attitude. And frankly, the mean old Ayatollah's been dead since 89. And Khamenei has shown himself to be reasonable when it comes to foreign policy. He may be a fanatic on a lot of things, but when it comes to the way he moves his chess pieces in the Middle East— it's never reckless. Hell, they launch missiles at the empty corners of American and Israeli bases in Iraq in order to make sure not to hurt anybody. You know, we could have a lot worse nemesis than him. I think we could bring him back in from the cold right now, frankly. And I'm sorry with that, I'm late. But thank you so much for having me on, dude. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah. We definitely got to hang out sometime soon here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, before you go, could you just please plug your content and tell my listeners where they can grab your books? You got it. So scotthorton.org for the show. Antiwar.com is the most important site on the internet. Libertarian Institute is second place behind that. Uh, that's my institute there, libertarianinstitute.org. And uh, if you go to libertarianinstitute.org slash books, you can find my books, Fool's Errand about Afghanistan, Enough Already about the whole dang terror war, and also the great Ron Paul uh, transcripts of my Ron Paul interviews. And there's more books there, and there's a hell of a lot more coming this year too. So that's all at the Libertarian Institute. And thank you so much again, Jose. Really appreciate it, man. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, and to my listeners, thank you for tuning in to El Nino Speaks. And with that, El Nino has spoken.